0: Our Father, we thank you in Jesus' name that you are present here right now with us this very hour. I thank you for everyone in this room and for what you're doing in each life. I thank you for bringing uh, Peter and Mary Jane safely home. And Lord, I pray that this uh, furlough time uh, will be a time of great blessing and strengthening for them and that they will gain the direction they need as they plan for the future as your Spirit directs them. And Lord, we all need that direction, whether we're traveling overseas or whether we're uh, just dealing with our neighbors next door, co-workers, uh, wherever, whoever it might be. We need divine direction every day because you've put us here to be your witnesses. As Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses and our lives are to be an example. And Father, as we study the word, the word makes us uh, conforms us to the image of Christ so that the life we live is exemplary of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that even as we study today, you will speak to us through your word. And Father, throughout this complex this morning, as the service is going on concurrently in the various other classes, we pray divine presence in every venue. And ask, Lord, that above all, your name will be exalted. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the 29th chapter of Deuteronomy, I'd like to read from Deuteronomy 29, beginning at verse 2 through verse 13. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders." Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you reached this place, when you reached this place, Sion king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan came out to meet us for battle, but we defeated them. And we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. So keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water that you may enter into the covenant which the Lord your God and with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God is making with you today in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers to Abraham Isaac and Jacob as we have been noting over the past several weeks the appointed hour of the invasion is rapidly coming And as Moses begins this um, uh, speech, I guess you could say, this uh, uh, direction or directive to Israel, uh, the hour is even more close than before that Israel is to cross the Jordan River. And the Israel nation crossing the Jordan River is a major turning point in the history of Israel. Just as leaving Egypt through the Red Sea was was a great time for, Of transformation of that nation, so will be the entrance and the conquest of the land. And so we're approaching that hour of this great invasion. And Moses is compelled by God to lead Israel to a renewal of their commitment, a renewal of what we today know as the Mosaic Covenant that which was first given on top of Mount Sinai, and was repeated to Israel over and over again as they met the various crises of their occupation, or that is, of their sojourn in the wilderness. They're now to repeat that. And one of the reasons for this repetition, of course, is that you and I know that the only way we really learn is by repetition, and we have to realize that new generation is coming on. Children are being born, children are growing up. How many hundreds of thousands were born and grew up in the wilderness and had no experience on Mount Sinai. They came after that experience. And so they need to come to this place of commitment personally too. And so that is what this is about. Moses, as he does so often throughout the uh, writings of the Torah, appeals to the historical record. And he reminded the people that they had seen with their own eyes, or they knew because they had heard from the eyewitnesses, if they were too young to have actually seen the miracles in Egypt. They had heard directly from their parents or their grandparents of what took place. And so they knew of the great miracles that God had performed. These were not hearsays, uh, uh, accounts. Uh, These were not legends. This wasn't folk tale. These were accounts of events which really happened within the lifetimes of thousands of those that were there in the wilderness at that time. In the fourth verse, in the midst of all that Moses says here, he makes a rather strange statement. He says, Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. It seems uh, kind of out of place there. He's talking about all the miracles which they witnessed and how they had seen God work against Pharaoh in Egypt and how God had delivered them through the uh, wilderness experience. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their sandals didn't wear out. He always provided them with food. Yet right in the midst of all that, he says, God didn't give you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And as you read that, you think, this is odd. It is unlikely that Moses is saying here that God deliberately prevented them from understanding what this was all about. Because that would be uh, contrary to all that we've been reading here. God keeps, through Moses, giving them the word, giving them the law, giving them the expansion of the law, giving them all the material that we have studied in, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and now Deuteronomy. God has given this all to them. Why? so that they would have hearts that would understand and eyes that would see and ears that would hear. So why does he make this statement? Did God really keep the deeper meaning from them so that they would just have this kind of a surface understanding of God, the kind of Christianity that most people in America have today? No. I think God was saying through Moses here that he had not given them a heart to understand because they had not asked for a heart to understand. Because they had not really sought to know him. They had, as it were, followed afar off. They were reluctant followers. I like that phrase, reluctant followers. Because I think that phrase applies to a great portion of those people today who call themselves Christians. Reluctant followers. They had to be prodded along. They had to be goaded along the path by Moses to bring them even to this very point. How many times did they throw up their hands and say, let's go back to Egypt? How many times did they rebel? How many times did God have to send fiery serpents or fire or illness? And yet, they kept turning away and chasing after other gods. Let me read a passage that uh, seems to speak to this from the 13th chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him." Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes because, you, they, because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Many follow Jesus afar off. Many are reluctant followers. That is... They want to be Christians because they want fire insurance. They don't want to go to hell. But they don't want to become Christians or they don't want to live as Christians because that will make them oddities in this world that will deny to them the pleasures of the flesh or whatever it might be. I mean, how many times did the Israelites say, let's go back to Egypt because we lust after the the leeks and the garlics and the fish and all the good things we had back there. All we got is this awful manna which we eat every day. And, you know, that applies to us in, in many ways. There are many, many people today who name the name of Christ for whom the love of Christ is not a passion. It's, it's not something they, they seek after. They, they want to be Christians and they play the game. They go to church and a few other things like that. May even go to a Sunday school class. But there's no passion there for the Lord. There's no desire to know Him above all else. That's not the driving desire of their hearts. And that's what Moses is saying here. He's saying God has not given you a heart of understanding or eyes to see or ears to hear because you don't want them. You don't want to have a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear because then you're going to have to live the life that God has ordained for you to live. We sometimes refer to people like that as nominal Christians or maybe worldly Christians. Well, to me, those are oxymorons. <laughs> There's no such thing as a worldly Christian. Uh, you're a Christian, you're not of this world. If you're of the world, you're not of Christ. Uh, you know, God says that in, in uh, 1 John. If you love the world, you, the love of the Father does not dwell within you. And so uh, that becomes quite clear, I think. And uh, this is the warning that God has given to these people. You can't go in there and conquer this land and have success in establishing the kingdom that God has given to you if you don't have a heart to understand and eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. You're going to be sucked in after these false gods because they are so appealing to the senses. And we've seen how that's happened already. Just in case the people were depending upon the promises that had been made long time ago, such as at Mount Sinai, where all the people said... We will follow the Lord. And I think they meant it at the time because the mountain was smoking and flames were roaring and, the, and, and it was trembling and, I mean, everything, all their senses were being bombarded with the presence of God. What else are they going to say? You know, so they all say, yes, we will obey God. We will do His, his bidding. But then when he got out in the wilderness and things got difficult and manna got a little boring, things changed. And that's a problem with the Christian life, too. We have what are called mountaintop experiences and valley experiences. And we all like the mountaintops because we have this emotional sense of belonging to God. But when the emotion goes away, what's left? Well, if the heart is truly seeking God, there still is a rock-solid commitment left that isn't based on emotion. It's based on faith and knowledge. And that faith cannot be there unless God gives it to us. And God isn't going to give it to us unless we know His Word. The Word is the source of it all. Moses asked them to renew their covenant with God that very day. Not tomorrow, not sometime in the future, but renew the covenant now. And and not because there's an emotional drive to it, because there's no smoking mountain here. They're just Moses giving the Word to the people. Renew your covenant now, as we're about to embark on this new chapter in the experience of Israel. And you'll notice there in, back in uh, the 29th chapter of Deuteronomy in verses 10 and 11, everybody is included. He says, you stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien. Nobody is left out. Everybody is included here. Even the alien is included in renewing this commitment to the Mosaic Covenant there before they embark upon the conquest of the land. It was to be not just a mass commitment. All Israel agreeing together to do this, it was to be also a personal, individual commitment. And I've tried to emphasize this before, and I trust that you understand this, that whatever we read about Israel in the Old Testament, we have to always interpret that it didn't just mean collectively. It also meant personally. Every single Israelite had to commit himself or herself to an understanding and to love of God in order to be a part of the true community of Israel. Just being born an Israelite didn't make them a child of God. As Jesus said when, when the uh, Pharisees and others told him to make the people stop crying Hosanna to, to Jesus, he says, if I don't do it, the rocks will cry out, you know. God can make, as Jesus said in another instance, children of Israel out of the rocks. So what good is it to you? Just to claim you're a child of of, of Abraham, therefore you're in the kingdom of God, big deal. God could make this rock into a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham. So that, that has nothing to do with it. It's got to be an individual, heartfelt commitment on the part of each individual. And that, of course, applies within the framework of the church. And that's why we as parents are always so concerned that our children come to the place of their own commitment to the Lord and of walking on with Him in such a way that we can cut the strings and know they're still going to float in God. And we aren't going to have to try to carry them along. Oh, we do in prayer. Hopefully we always do in prayer. But, but to know that they, they're going to walk in the Lord because of their own commitment, not because they came from a family which was, quote, a Christian family. Let's read on in the next few verses of Deuteronomy 29, verse 14. Now not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here today with us today in the presence of the Lord of God and with those who are not with us here today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them. Lest there shall be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. And it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. And the Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of, of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. This particular passage, these few verses, have two very important truths within them, at least two. One is the long-term effect of the covenant, and the other is the seriousness of rejecting that covenant. Verse 15 of this uh, particular passage makes it quite clear that as the men and women stood that day and renewed the covenant, God was not making the covenant with them only, but with their posterity, with all those who would be born to them and to their children and their children's children to the umpteenth generation. God was making that covenant that day with them. And God has never gone back on His part of the covenant. The covenant is never broken by God. When the covenant is broken, it's broken by man. And of course, we, um, at our particular point in life, probably having read through the Scripture more than one time, uh, know that they did break the covenant, and they suffered the consequences. In fact, we'll even get to uh, a statement concerning that in this chapter. Verse 19 was a warning. You, you have all probably come across people as I have, who say, "I am a self-made man. I don't need God." I have what I have because I got it with my own strength, my own ability. Well, this verse, 19, is saying that uh, there may be that man who in the midst of all this will, will boast saying, I have peace, even though I walk in stubbornness of heart. I don't have to follow God to have peace and to enjoy this life. And you know, if you talk to many people in the world, they, they will say, hey, I I'm, I'm have a good life. I don't need God. I'm, I'm having lots of fun. And I've got all the things that life has to offer here. There are people like that. You know, not everybody out there in the world is living in total misery, just wishing for the next moment they could blow their brains out or something. Some really think they're having a good time and that they don't need God. There are people like that. But notice what God says. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of this man because what we have in this, this portion of Scripture is a litany of consequences that are horrifying. God says to such a man that he will never forgive him. That his anger would burn against him. You know, it's one thing to have the devil mad at you. But if you've got God mad at you, (laughs) that's a different story. It says that every curse in the book of Deuteronomy will be put on this person. Well, there are a lot of curses in here. You may have noticed. There's one whole chapter of them. You know, the ground will turn to iron, and the skies will turn to brass, and it won't rain, and, and, and all the trees will dry up, and all the animals will die off, and, you know, the wombs will become barren. I mean, what is there left if the curse of God is on a land, and his name will be blotted out from under heaven? He will become a non-entity in the historical record, in the human record. He'll be, you know, it says, God will single him out for adversity. That is a scary thought. To be singled out by God for adversity? (laughs) By the creator, all-powerful God of the universe? To put it mildly, that won't be fun for the person. This passage reminds us of the foolishness of the human heart. I, I don't think we're so far from it that we can't relate to this. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. The human heart is desperately wicked. There is no such thing as a naturally pure human heart. There is no such thing. Never on this planet since the fall, other than Jesus Christ, has there walked a human being who had a pure heart in in the flesh, in, in, in the natural life. And even after we become Christians, you and I may notice that our heart gets into trouble. You know, We don't just walk down the straight and narrow way without bouncing off the walls and breaking through and going out in rabbit trails here and there along the way. With all the wondrous promises God makes here, of the blessings upon those who walk with Him. Your, your vines will fruit without fail. You'll always have an abundance of, of, of grapes and of olives and dates and your, your fields will give forth bountifully and your animals will multiply like rabbits and your families will grow and be strong and the enemy will be driven off and sickness will not be here. These are the promises of God if they walk in obedience. You think, how can anybody rationally say, I don't want that? when you contrast it to the terrifying promises of curse for walking in disobedience. It is illogical, as Dr. Spock would say. Not the baby doctor, but (laughs) Mr. Spock, I guess I should say. This guy. (laughs) This is illogical. And it is illogical. Makes no sense. But whoever accused us of being sensible much of the time. The only way that we're going to walk, as was true of Israel, the only way we're going to walk in the way that God has set before us is to know that way. First of all, we, must, we need to know that way. How do we find it? Right here. There is no other place. That's why certain churches have gone off the track where they've elevated tradition to equality or superiority to the Word of God, and we do what we do because that's what the Council has said, and that's what the Pope or the or the Patriarch has said, and and so we're going to go this way regardless of what Scripture says, and they get way off the track. That's what happens to the to the um, modernist Protestant Church that has decided that the Bible is uh, just a human document, what's full of errors and contradictions, and so you know you might find something good in it here and there, but. You know, don't get too enamored with it. Just follow good sense, good modern psychology. Uh, Why don't we? Well, we have to know the way that God has set before us. And we have to ask him to give us hearts that understand, eyes that see and ears that hear. We need to ask him for that. Because if we don't ask, it probably means we don't want it. And so we daily need to renew our commitment, as he was asking the Jews, the, the, the Hebrews to do that day, to renew their co- commitment to God in the Mosaic sense. This was something that I don't think would hurt us to do every day. Get up in the morning and say, Lord, I renew my commitment to you and all that it means. So that we become refreshed in, in our understanding of whose we are and what is the purpose for our being here. And, and then we have to blanket that with study of the Word of God and prayer. Because if we don't do that, um, it, it, it just becomes a commitment like it was for many of the Hebrews that they forgot a few days later. So If they didn't pursue God, they would leave him. Their hearts would be darkened. Their eyes would be blind and their ears would be deaf. We need to remind ourselves who it is we're serving. Because it's very easy each day to get up and serve ourselves. Because most of us have plenty to do all the time we don't just sit down and say, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to do next. You know, most of us, that's not a problem. We're just wondering how we're going to work through all these things we have to do. And the only way we're going to do it is by God's guidance and by His strength. The consequences of obedience are glorious. The consequences of disobedience are horrendous. They're long-term. And when we walk in disobedience, not only is it impacting our lives, it impacts those that will come in subsequent generations. Because that disobedience carries over into our children and into our children's children. That's why it's so important that we walk in the integrity of our hearts and the way that God has set before us, bathed in the Word of God. Uh, Oh, I read this this morning. I'm going to just stick this in here. I don't know how many of you get the Elizabeth Elliot newsletter, but it's a wonderful... um, Document that comes out, um, I don't know, once a month or every other month. Anyway, she had an interview one day with uh, Corey Ten Boom. I-, I trust most of you know who Corey Ten Boom was. And um, she said she went to see her with her daughter, that is uh, Elizabeth Elliott, with her daughter, went to see her. And she says, as we entered the bedroom, Corey Ten Boom ha- was ordered to take one whole day in bed out of the week because of her health. And it says, she stretched out her hands to us with a warm, welcoming smile. We asked her for more of her story. Oh, I've had a very happy life. I've been single because the Lord chose the single life for me. I had said, I'm yours, Lord, lock, stock, and barrel. I prayed for victory over the sex life, and Jesus gave it to me. We spoke of the meaning of suffering. And she says, this is what Corey Tim Boom says, American Christians are open and eager but they do not understand the sufferings they must undergo. Christians in communist countries are much happier. They have to be genuine because of the terrible price they must pay. I asked how we ought to prepare for suffering, and she said, soak in the Word. How many of us soak in the Word? How many of us is at um, our little verset for the day at A little Christianette, (laughs) (laughs) soak in the Word. That I think not only means that we commit some time to it, but we commit some time to thinking about it and and learning how to apply it in our lives, to to make it a reality, to make it our guide. Of course, as we have talked about before, that was that was the key cry of the entire Reformation, was to try to get the church back on track with the Word, the Scripture only. Sola Scriptura, not tradition and councils and all this other gobbledygook, but the Scripture alone. That's what gives direction for life. That's what gives strength for life. That's what gives power for life. And that's what he's trying to say to the people. As you renew your commitment, heart, soul, and mind, and body to God, you need to pursue Him with your heart, with, with your heart, with your eyes and with your ears that you might understand and live truly for Him. Because when that happens, when, when the enemy comes along and, and dangles this little other God in front of your face that kind of appeals sensually, you'll say, be gone with it. Because it's a trite toy compared to the living God who is a consuming fire. Verse 22 of uh, Deuteronomy 29. Now the generation to come your sons who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of this land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown, unproductive, no grass grows in it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admon and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. And all the nations shall say, Why has the Lord done thus to the land? Why this great outburst of anger? Then men shall say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known, whom He had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and great wrath, cast them into another land, as it is this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. The consequences of rejecting the covenant and walking in disobedience would be obvious to all, Even to the point of affecting the land, do we think every once in a while about the fact that when we harden our hearts against the Lord and walk in disobedience, it isn't just God and I, it's more than that. Because everybody in the purview of my life is impacted, whether I know it or not, by my being out of fellowship with God. It is not a solo deal. Well, if I choose to walk in disobedience, that's my problem. It's none of your business. Hardly. Unless you're going to be a hermit living on the top of a hill and deep in the forest or something like that, your life impacts all those around. And the consequences are obvious to all. And in the case of Israel, God made it to affect the land also. Israel was given the land as the promised land as a trust God said, I will give you the land and bless you in the land if you walk in obedience to me. And as soon as they decided to walk in barrenness of soul, he said, so it shall be for the land. If your soul is barren in relationship to me, the land will be barren to you. Your sheep will not produce lambs. Your cattle will not produce calves, (laughs) cowlets, The crops will not grow and the fruit will not come. (laughs) If you're going to be barren in your soul towards me, the land will be barren towards you because it is yours as a trust. How serious would be the consequences of spiritual apostasy. Well, this passage says it would be so serious that the land will become like the sites of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which, of course, were obliterated obliterated to the point that today day they're still arguing about whether it's here or there. Whether it's under the southern end of the Dead Sea, which is basically di- dried up now, or along the edges of the, uh, of the escarpment over on the Edom side. Well, whatever. I mean, that's how obliterated these sites were. You're not going to go over there and find, oh, look at the foundations. Oh, this must have been a temple in, in Sodom. No. It was... Phew. These places were wiped out. And God is saying, that's what's going to happen to Israel. If you do not walk with me... This disastrous situation would not only serve as judgment upon the disobedient, but it would serve as warning to the observer. Because it says others will come along and they'll look at the land and they say, what happened here? Why is this land so barren? I don't think you and I can understand what a barren land can be, how barren a land can be if God has judged it. You know, we have drought every once in a while. It's kind of tough. But do we really know what it would be like to be in a land where God has cursed the land? where it's just full of creepy crawlies and nothing else? I don't think so. And that was what God would do to Israel and what God did to Israel. And other nations would come along and they'd say, why? And others would say, it's because they broke their covenant with the Lord their God. Will that be a powerful testimony to these other nations or what? You see, God is going to proclaim His name, whether we do it willingly or God has to proclaim His name by His judgment on His own people they will understand, even the pagan will understand, that Yahweh is a mighty God because he can judge in such a devastating way. Verse 29 of this passage is a bit of an enigma. enigma. Let me read that verse again. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. I think certainly at the very least, this passage means that the God who is all and in all can be known only to the extent that he reveals himself to us. You cannot know God unless he has chosen to reveal himself to you. He has, of course, chosen to reveal himself to mankind. He did so in the Garden of Eden. He did so repetitively down through the Old Testament narrative. He did so through the Mount Sinai experience and the beginning of the writing of Scripture with the Torah. And then the writings of the prophets and the writings of the historical books. And, of course, in Jesus himself was the greatest manifestation of who God is. And then, of course, the writings of the Uh, gospel writers and the other New Testament writers. All of this provides us with a revelation of who God is. We couldn't know who God was if it weren't for those things. If there had never been a prophet, if there had never been Jesus to walk here on this earth, if there had never been a preacher to preach the gospel or the mouthpiece to speak forth the word of God, if Moses had never been, if none of these things had ever happened, we would be as the other peoples of the world are today, lost in pagan darkness, not having a clue who God was. But every man knows there has to be a God. As one has said, there probably are no true atheists because God has set eternity in the heart, we're told in Ecclesiastes. And the scripture tells us in Genesis that we are made in the image of God. And we can patently try to deny that image, but the reality of it will come. And, and I think men, such as Voltaire even, who, who held up almost to the end, as far as we know, that, oh, there is no God. You wonder what was going through his mind in those last moments of his life when he was about to be pitched out of this life into the unknown. Was he sure there was no God? I don't think so. There are many things that will not be revealed to us in this life. But just because, you and I cannot see everything as God sees it. And, of course, you see that. Let's, let's take, for example, this current big hit Titanic. People today look at that and they say, if there's a God, how could we have allowed this to happen? And they said that then, in 1912. How could God allow, what was it, 1,500 people to die in freezing water when other ships were around and could have been there? If it hadn't been for a certain dumb things people did, God could have made them do smart things. Well, God could have made the people who ran it driving the Titanic a little smarter too, but why did He allow this to happen? And and you know we can only guess. We can only guess because God has not said I did this because da 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 da. You know point one, point two, point three. He's not done that, but we can guess and say, well, we know that that was an age in which man was coming to the place where he thought he could conquer the universe. You know, already, I mean, it was said of that ship that this is a ship that God could not even sink. (laughs) You know, such a statement is kind of foolish. If anybody has ever just studied a little bit of the geology of an iceberg, I don't care how big you you, build your ship. You're not going to run over an iceberg, not a good-sized iceberg. I mean, you see this little mountain 100 feet high sitting out of the water and don't realize that under the water there's this monstrous thing, you know. But it changed many people's opinion of what life was all about. Suddenly they realized man is not the measure of all things. But man is is, is but a being who is fragile, whose life, as the scripture says, is like a breath. It's like the flower that blooms in the morning and, and dies away in the afternoon heat. It's a vapor. And therefore, obviously, our understanding of God is absolutely all important. But just because we cannot understand everything from God's point of view doesn't mean we have an excuse for disobedience. And people will use that as an excuse. They'll say, I don't, you know, God did this, and I don't know why he did that, and it was a terrible thing for him to do, so I'm not going to believe in him. But just because we don't understand everything God does is no excuse for disobedience. Because God has revealed to us everything that we need to know in order to walk aright with him. Let me just read a couple of passages in closing. Passages that are undoubtedly familiar to you. In the first chapter of Acts, the risen Lord is, is appearing for his last time and he's ready to rise from the top of Mount of Olives. And the disciples are very concerned, as we probably might be too, as to what all this is going to mean. And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know The times are the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria, and Samaria, and the uttermost remotest parts of the earth. (laughs) It's not for you to know all the answers to all of these things, but you are to be my witnesses. You don't have to know everything to go out and tell everybody, or to tell others about Jesus. You don't have to be a Josh McDowell or a Ravi Zacharias uh, to be able to witness even to the most hardened of skeptics, because the Spirit of God is our spokesman. And as we give little tidbits of Scripture to such persons, it is God, the Holy Spirit, who takes it and changes that heart if that heart is going to be changed. You could be as brilliant as Aristotle and never change a single heart apart from the Holy Spirit. And you can be as simple as an unlettered man or woman and and just give what you do know about God, quoting scripture, and God can use that to change. Well, for example, Justin Martyr, you may... I've heard of him before, I've referred to him before, but Justin Martyr lived in the second century. He was one of the most brilliant men ever to live in the second century. He, uh, he had studied every religion, every philosophy. He was independently wealthy, so he didn't have to work. He spent all his time doing all of this, and walking one day on, on a beach in Asia Minor, he came across a simple fisherman, and that simple fisherman shared with him who Jesus was, and converted. And that man was converted, and he became the evangelist in philosopher's robes. He even wrote a letter to the emperor of the Roman Empire saying, this is why you should believe in Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit. We don't know everything, and we don't know everything that we'd like to know, but we know enough to be effective in God's kingdom. And of course, you know the passage so often quoted in, in 2 Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Adequately equip, equipped, not know all the answers, not be able to say, why is there a devil? You know, we may not be able to explain to everybody's satisfaction why there is a devil. Why did God allow this to happen? How could it happen? We may not be able to explain all those things very adequately, but if we know the scripture, we're adequately equipped to do the job that God has given us to do. And that's what Moses is saying to the Israelite people. You will be adequately equipped to go in and conquer this land if you renew your commitment of the covenant to God this day and walk in it in obedience. Well, we'll pick up with chapter 30 next week.